Welcome back to the U.S. Naval History Podcast. This is another mini episode on a rogue wave that sank the USS Tennessee with the loss of 43 men dead or missing as the Tennessee was dashed up against the rocks and the cliffs of the Dominican Republic and the story of the three medals of honor earned for heroism that day. As a very brief reminder, if you are looking for a comprehensive step through of U.S. Naval History, the first 19 episodes of this podcast do that chronologically, and I recommend that you go back and listen to them if you haven't done so already at the end of this podcast. And as always, if you find that this podcast is something you enjoy, please share it with someone else who you think might enjoy it, because that's the only way that this spreads. And with me to discuss the sinking of the Tennessee, I have the perfect guest with a little bit of family connection to the ship, Micah Engber. Welcome, Micah. Thank you, Chase. It's great to be here, and I really appreciate you having me. It's an honor to be able to talk with you, and it's a specifically an honor for me to be able to talk about this ship and this disaster. So I want to start with a little bit of background on the ship, the USS Tennessee, ACR-10, which was launched on December 3rd, 1904. ACR stands for Armored Cruiser, which is a type of warship in the late 19th, early 20th centuries that was designed to operate at long range, aka cruise, thus cruiser, independently and capable of defeating any ship apart from a battleship and fast enough to outrun any battleship that it encountered. And so this really is a very American design tradition back in the turn of the century and prior when the United States Navy was not the biggest baddest in the world. And American ships were frequently designed like that, going all the way back to the six frigates, which were designed to outgun any British frigates and run away faster than any British ships of the line and sort of occupy that middle zone. So the ACR is just an extension of that at really the turn of the century. As I said, it was commissioned in 1904. And so this new armored cruiser, the Tennessee, she was the first of her class, departed Hampton Roads on November 8th, 1906, as an escort for the Louisiana, which was President Theodore Roosevelt's ship. Um, and it embarked on a cruise to the Panama Canal, which is still a work in progress at that point, big strategic initiative for the United States. So we could link our east and west coast and move our fleets back and forth quickly, as opposed to going all the way down around the tip of South America or around the world, both of which were long, dangerous journeys. And from there, the Tennessee's primary mission was basically gunboat diplomacy in the Caribbean and South America until 1912 or so, when she sailed to the Mediterranean to protect U.S. interests and property during the First Balkan War, which was between the crumbling Ottoman Empire and the Balkan League, which saw the European parts of the Balkans, Bulgaria, Serbia, Greece, Montenegro. And that basically resulted in the crumbling of the Ottoman Empire in Europe. Fast forward a couple of years, mainly sticks around the Middle East. On May 25th, 1916, the Tennessee was renamed the Memphis, that the Tennessee name could be given to a new battleship, which became BB-43, the USS Tennessee. And so the now USS Memphis, formerly the USS Tennessee, starts sailing down to the Caribbean harbor of Santo Domingo. And on July 23rd, 1916, she arrives there and relieves the USS Seattle, which was the previous cruiser that was there to sort of ensure that American property and interests were being properly taken care of, right, during these uh, rebellions, make sure that none of the, the U.S. companies or citizens were unduly harmed and a little bit of the extension of gunboat diplomacy. The captain of the Seattle, Captain Edward L. Beach Sr., was essentially the United States' top diplomat there, because this is really a day where the State Department wasn't particularly built out, and the highest-ranking military officer, which was often a naval captain of the ship that was nearby, was still serving that diplomatic role, sort of the sunset of that period. But 
Uh, that happened throughout most of the first century and a half of the United States' history. And so Captain Edward L. Beach, he became the captain of the Memphis. And on August 29th, he had a date with history. Yeah, um, August 29th was an interesting day. The, the Memphis was the flagship for Admiral Pond, who was ashore at the time. And at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Memphis was anchored at station about five nautical miles off the coast of, of the rocky beach. And you notice the, the water started to get a little rough and she was starting to roll. Now, she only had two boilers online just to keep up steam to power auxiliary services and the dynamos, get electricity going. And in order to move of the 16 boilers, they need to have at least four going and preferably eight. Uh, so Captain Beach observed them, kind of an unexpected heavy swell developing and it about 3.30 in the afternoon, he gave orders to make preparations to leave the harbor and raise steam. And, um, well, they expected to be able to get underway by 4.30, 4.35, which shouldn't normally be a problem, but it was this time. And so we get some pretty harrowing accounts, and one of them was in the Proceedings, which is the semi-official U.S. Navy magazine and a great historical source. And... This one was written by a lieutenant commander on board, Lieutenant Commander Thomas Withers. And he's writing about a year and a half after. And he says that this, this sea state was developing unaccompanied by any wind whatsoever. That's a direct quote. And that eventually they see this just absolute wall, 100 feet high, they say, of yellow water moving very, very slowly in the horizon. And so at that point, it is an all-out emergency. And they are trying to stoke these boilers which they're not cold iron, thank goodness, because they've been uh, keeping those two boilers online, which means the pipes are hot, which means that they don't have to go through this very, very long heat up process. But nonetheless, that approximately 45 minutes it takes to get the rest of the boilers online turns out not to be enough. And let's talk about why it takes so much time. We're not talking about boilers today that operate on oil or, or gas, and they certainly weren't gas turbine engines. These were triple expansion reciprocating steam engines. There were two of them, and they really, in order to make top speed, had 16 boilers that were going pretty much at all time. But Captain Beach, in discussion with his flag admiral, Admiral Pond, rather than keep four boilers going, as Captain Beach had requested, he said in order to save coal, because coaling a ship was not a pleasant duty, only keep two going. That's all they needed. But in order to start the other ones, how do you start them? Well, you have people shoveling coal, grabbing shovels full of coal out of the working boilers and walking them backwards so the smoke and the heat doesn't get in their face to the other boilers to light them off. All this time, they've been sitting in the San Domingo Harbor for a while, so there's all sorts of repair work going on. In the engine room itself, and you got to remember, there are boiler rooms, there are coal bunkers, there are boilers themselves, and then there are the engine rooms. The engine rooms themselves, the floor plates were taken up because they're working below deck on the engines. So they're trying to do all this while the ship is starting to roll in incredible waves that are coming through that eventually get up to 75 and 100 feet high. And we now sort of know, although they didn't at the time, that there had been, in other parts of the Caribbean, two simultaneous hurricanes. And hurricanes create waves, obviously. And if you have a little bit of physics background, you can understand there's something called constructive interference. And if you don't know physics, it's basically when two waves 
sort of have their wavelength line up. These waves sort of combine and double in strength. You can think about it like that. These multiple hurricanes are creating these waves, which were basically creating a constructive interference pattern, which means that the waves were sort of lining up and getting bigger. And then those waves were creating constructive interference again and getting bigger and getting bigger. And so it wasn't a typhoon directly, but it was a weird confluence of different wave patterns all happening to line up and create a rogue wave, which is a very slow-moving, massive wall of water that came towards Santa Domingo Harbor, where the Memphis was moored. And this wall of water was slowly coming in. They're trying to bring the boilers online. They're getting them primed. And this wave is described by the same Lieutenant Commander Withers as he was looking eastward and, quote, an immense wave or swell was approaching. This swell came at a small angle with the shoreline, and the inshore end of the swell curled some distance inland. As the swell got close to the side of the ship, it became very steep, and the ship rode over it without swinging up onto it. And so, all good so far. But then he goes on to write, it is impossible for me to describe the astounding abruptness of the emergency. On board the Memphis, much was happening. Wave followed wave at an interval of perhaps 30 to 40 seconds. These waves were so large and their faces became so steep that they simply flowed over the ship. They flowed over the bridge many feet deep. They flowed over our stacks and they flooded our fires. And so you can think about a ship, right? These, are, these smokestacks are 70 plus feet tall and the wave is simply going over the smokestack. It's so big and steep and going down the funnels and putting out the fires that they need to get underway. This is, I mean, absolutely terrifying. I have seen some big waves at sea. I have seen nothing like this. And a couple of things to bear in mind. Uh, Memphis had some shore parties on shore that were recalled knowing that they were going to get underway and they sent out their motor launch to recall them. They would go to send a second one, but based on the waves, they couldn't. The motor launch coming out of the Ozama River couldn't see what was happening in the harbor and came out carrying 31 men. It foundered. It could not make it through the waves. If you imagine this small motor launch with 31 men, absolutely foundered. Of those 31 men, only six survived. Yeah, and that's where most of those casualties from the day came from. Most of the people, miraculously, on board the Memphis managed to survive. This Lieutenant Commander Withers again. These waves were driven by no wind. They took the shape of breakers as they approached the shallow water, but they had very little driving force. Approaching, they appeared irresistible, but if one held his breath, they required but little strength to hold on to the ship. Things around the deck were torn loose by the motion of the ship, especially after she began landing hard, but the waves seemed to have very little smashing power and did but very little direct damage. At around 4.15 p.m., I reported to the captain that the ship was hitting the bottom, but was not dragging. I am certain that she was striking the bottom before she dragged, because I was taking bearings, and I could plainly see that she struck in the trough of every wave. So basically, the ship, this wave, was creating a system where it was flooding all over the ship and pushing the ship down into the trough of the wave. It was just hitting the bottom and being dashed in a way that no ship is meant to do. And this was uh, the beginning of the end for the Memphis. She kept riding up and down, and men could not be on deck. They couldn't be in the foxhole to, to even break the anchor if they got up steam, and they couldn't get up steam. Captain Peach, and 
I can't remember if you discussed this on uh, previous episodes, but there was a time when the Navy was broken into two sets of officers, the engineering officers and the line officers. And Captain Beach had started as an engineering officer before the two parties had been merged into one. So he knew what was going on down in the boiler rooms. And he kept asking for steam and saying that he needed to get going and eventually said, we're going to start and try to move with two boilers. But they couldn't. There just wasn't enough steam. They needed steam to heat up the engines. The engines needed to be heated up before they could start, or the cylinders would crack. They were using that up, and steam pressure just kept dropping and dropping and dropping, and the boilers started getting cooler and cooler as water's coming down these huge funnels that are 75 feet or 100 feet in the air, putting out, dousing the coal fires. Lieutenant Commander Withers wrote, at 4.20 p.m., the ship began to drag. Each wave would slide her a couple of hundred feet towards the beach, and our anchor, with 70 fathoms of chain, would not even make her swing into the sea. The water shipped down the stacks so deadened our fires that all hope of saving the ship quickly vanished. Within five minutes after the ship began to drag, she was thrown on the bottom so hard that most of the crew were knocked down. Mess tables were torn from their brackets. The ready shells on the broadside gun burst from their racks, piping, etc., crashed down, and below decks became a death trap. The hull of the ship started to stove in from the bottom. It was being thrown down onto the coral so hard. It was totally destroyed. She only had a few leaks, but she was stove in. The engines, which were angled so that the uh, propeller shafts are going straight out through the stern of the ship, the engines were thrown off kilter based on the hull of the ship being stove in. Totally useless. Couldn't even run if the steam had gotten up. Totally destroyed this huge vessel that was again finally cast ashore on the rocks of Santa Domingo. And so the ship has been cast onto essentially a cliff and it's sitting there getting battered by these waves. And so what they do is they take the lifelines and they're quickly rigged and the men are divided into groups by their officers and their petty officers. And these groups are huddling in the lee of the stacks and the bridges. The waves continue to bash against them. And below decks, at this point, everyone's stopped, right? They're not getting off. They're not getting underway. Two boilers were crushed by coral. The men in the fire room were horribly scalded. And there were some absolute heroics that happened there. And on deck... Uh, they basically rig up these these lines to get people ashore so that they can get away from these waves. Some of the black gang were so badly burnt that then they, when they finally got on deck, you could see the flesh peeling off, hanging off their arms, heading down their fingers like sleeves had been torn off. There was steam was all over. Many of them have even breathed in steam and and and, and died from that. It was it was a horrible situation. Yeah, just absolutely miserable. And they set up these lines that go from the taller parts of the ship, the bridge, uh, the superstructure, over to shore. And they set up a system to get the injured men off first, and then they get the enlisted sailors off. And then finally, the officers go ashore amid these waves, and the ship is still being thrashed about on the shore under the cliffs. And over the next three and a half hours, 750 men are sent ashore over the lines with only one minor accident. And you need to understand also that because the ship, although cast ashore 
it's still rolling in the breakers, rolling back and forth. They could tie the lines onto the ship, but there was no way they could tie them onto the shore because it kept rolling and it would have broken the lines. So there was a group of Marines and a group of sailors, the shore party that was still on shore, holding the lines, holding them taut back and forth as the ship rolled so the men could come down the breach boys evacuating the vessel. It was a horrible situation, and now it's starting to get dark. And so they finally get most of the men ashore and they're trying to take a muster, see who's there, who's not. And they find that a couple of the men from the, the launch, so basically the small boat that gets from the shore to the actual ship, had been thrown alive to Fort Ozama, which was on a cliff more than 40 feet high. So their boat had been launched by one of these waves over 40 feet high on the cliff. And some of the sailors had actually survived miraculously. But most of the 43 who were dead and or missing, never found, were lost from the boats in the water, those small boats. Uh, a few of the men were washed overboard and were lost in the first couple of minutes when they were still trying to get the ship underway and not everyone had a time to get inside the skin of the ship. And some more died in the engine rooms, uh, mostly of steam injuries, essentially being burnt alive and breathing in the steam, which would create blisters on your lungs and that means that you essentially suffocated um, as your lungs couldn't transfer oxygen and there were just a lot of heroics that happened that day and i mentioned at the beginning that there were three medals of honor and i want to briefly read the three citations so the first one was for george william rudd he was a chief machinist mate and his citation reads for extraordinary heroism in the line of his profession while attached to the USS Memphis at a time when that vessel suffered total destruction from a hurricane anchored off Santa Domingo City, 29 August 1916. C.M.M. Rudd took his station in the engine room and remained at his post amidst scalding steam and rushing of thousands of tons of water into his department, receiving serious burns from which he immediately died. The next citation reads, for extraordinary heroism in his line of profession as senior engineer officer on board USS Memphis at a time when that vessel was suffering from total destruction from a hurricane while anchored off Santo Domingo City, August 29th, 1916. Lieutenant Jones did everything possible to get the engines and boilers ready. And if the elements that burst upon the vessel had been delayed for a few minutes, the engines could have saved the vessel. With boilers and steam pipes bursting about him in clouds of scalding steam, with thousands of tons of water coming down upon him in almost complete darkness, Lieutenant Jones nobly remained at his post as long as the engines would turn over, exhibiting the most extreme unselfish heroism, which inspired the officers and men who were with him. When the boilers exploded, Lieutenant Jones, accompanied by two of his shipmates, rushed into the fire rooms and drove the men out of there, dragging some carrying others into the engine room where there was air to be breathed instead of steam. Lieutenant Jones's actions on this occasion was above and beyond the call of duty. And the final Medal of Honor citation reads, for extraordinary heroism in the line of his profession while serving on board the USS Memphis at a time when that vessel was suffering total destruction from a tsunami while anchored off Santo Domingo City, 29 August, 1916. Machinist Wiley took his station in the engineer's department and remained at his post of duty amidst scalding steam and the rush of thousands of tons of water into his department as long as the engines would turn, leaving only when ordered to leave.
When the boilers exploded, he assisted in getting the men out of the fire room and carrying them into the engine room, where there was air instead of steam to breathe. It was approximated that he carried up to 106 men on his shoulders, saving countless lives. He received serious third-degree burns from the steam himself. Machinist Wiley's conduct on this occasion was above and beyond the call of duty. Three medals of honor, one ship. Pretty amazing. And I just get the, you know, little bit of chills reading that. Um, the absolute heroism shown by the men put into a situation that 10 minutes prior they had no inclination. It was a regular watch, a regular day, and duty called, and they, and they answered. And I'd like to tell you why this story is so important to me. Absolutely. My grandfather, Max Angber, served on the USS Tennessee before she was recommissioned Memphis. He was detached before she went down to uh, Santa Domingo Harbor during this terrible tragedy. But there was a group, as you can imagine, that survived and they formed an organization known as the survivors of the USS Memphis and welcomed all those that ever served upon her as the Memphis or the Tennessee. Also, the group of Marines stationed in Santa Domingo were part of this organization, as well as members of the crew of the USS Castine, which served to truly help the Memphis and tried to rescue the motor launch that overturned. My grandfather died when I was 14 years old, but I was fortunate enough to attend two of these reunions with him and two subsequently. And I knew some of these men who served, who are written about in some of these documents and um, got to truly respect them and understand what, what unsung heroes they were. So, um, Again, I met these men when I was 12 the first time and attended the re these reunions a few times up until I turned 20 years old when I was appointed to the executive committee of this group because they knew that they weren't going to last and they wanted this memory to continue. As far as I know, I'm the last member of this organization to be alive. And while there have supposed to have been some perpetual memorial ceremonies that were to take place at the Naval Air Station Millington. Um, the last one I heard about was August of 1996. And when I've called down there and I'm not casting aspersions on anyone there, apparently it fell by the waysides, which often happens. But I wanted people who listen to the podcast, who love Naval history like we do and appreciate the Navy and the men and women who serve in her to know this story because it's an unknown disaster that took place 103 years ago. And some say the greatest peacetime naval disaster in US history. Wow, that is extraordinary. And you know, it is both sad and the natural occurrence of things that the heroism that happens slowly fades from memory. And I'm glad that, Micah, you were able to you know, talk and share with my audience the little slice of naval history that I certainly had never heard of before you shot me a message on Twitter. So anyone that's on Twitter at U.S. Naval History, it definitely works. So there is one addendum to this story, which is that Captain Beach was court-martialed. And this was not 
an entirely rare occurrence. It was almost expected if you lost your ship. Not quite as uh, mandatory as the British system, but the ship was lost, and so there was a court-martial ordered for the captain. And Micah, can you tell me about that? Well, yeah, there was a board of inquiry, and the board of inquiry determined that there needed to be a court-martial. And of course, the Navy had to have the court-martial that was handled by Captain Beach's peers and many men that he knew from the academy. Uh, they did find him guilty and uh, didn't want to, but asked for a great clemency to be held for him. But what Captain Beach did, he was an incredibly honorable man. He had took great pride in the Navy and in Navy traditions. And he took full responsibility during the court martial. Now you gotta remember, as I mentioned earlier, the Memphis was the flagship for Admiral Pond, who was ashore at the time. And Captain Beach, at the direction of Admiral Pond, only kept two boilers going, even though he felt that it was best to keep four going. The prosecution never called Admiral Pond as a witness during the court-martial because it would have hurt the prosecution. Captain Beach refused to call him as a witness for the defense, as he felt, as the ship's captain, that it was his responsibility, regardless of who was truly at fault. And I think it's also important to note that Admiral Pond did not volunteer to testify and did not attend the proceedings at all. And with that, I want to add from Lieutenant Commander Withers, who I've been quoting from during this podcast, he concluded his article in proceedings with this sentence. I know that every member of the crew will join me in wishing to serve again with the captain who is so wonderful throughout the wreck. And I think that that speaks to the degree to which the crew knew regardless of official outcome, that the captain truly did everything in his power and was the honorable, capable officer that you described. And as I mentioned earlier, I met some of the surviving members of the crew who held Captain Beach in very, very high esteem. And there was a book written by his son called The Wreck of the Memphis that documents this in great, great detail. It came out in 1966. That's how my grandfather found out about the survivors organization. But it was written by his son, Captain Edward L. Beach Jr. And that name may be familiar to many of your listeners because Captain Edward L. Beach Jr. is the author of Run Silent, Run Deep, a famous book, one of the best submarine books of World War II ever written. Highly recommended. Very great film, though the film has nothing to do with the book, but also the commander of the USS Triton, the first nuclear submarine to sail around the world submerged. And there is a bit of a uh, tribute to the Memphis and to his father, because before he left on this very secret mission to sail around the world submerged, he contacted one of the survivors who had the Memphis's flag that was smuggled off the ship. And he said to him, I need the flag, don't ask me why. And he was Captain Beach's son and the acting commanding officer of the survivors of Memphis, so there was no question, the flag was sent to him. And when the Triton came into port after that historic around the world submerged journey, flying from the highest point of the highest periscope was the flag of the USS Memphis. That is an absolutely extraordinary way to 
cap off two eras of naval history and this episode. Thank you very much, Micah. It was an absolute pleasure. I really, really enjoyed doing this episode. And if you want to hear more from Micah, which I hope that you do, you can find him. He is a contributor at jetwine.com, J-E-T-W-H-I-N-E.com, also at airplanegeeks.com. And he is also a co-host of the podcast, The Journey is the Reward. And you can also find him at Twitter, which is how I found him, or I should say how he found me at Mainfly, M-A-I-N-E, like the state, fly, F-L-Y, where you can reach out to him. And if I can help anybody who wants to learn more about the Memphis, I would be happy to help. Awesome. Well, thank you, Micah. And as always, please rate and review this podcast. Go find Micah's podcast. Again, that is The Journey is the Reward. Go find him on AirplaneGeeks and JetWine.com. If you want to learn more about the sinking of the Memphis, you can always read Captain Edward L. Beach Jr., the son of Captain Edward L. Beach Sr., who was found guilty but nonetheless earned the admiration of his men almost universally and I believe served as a great credit to the United States Navy during the sinking of the Memphis as a result of the rogue waves that hit Santa Domingo Harbor. Um, and that book is The Wreck of the Memphis by Edward L. Beach Jr., and you can always reach out on Twitter, Instagram at US Navy Podcast or email me at US Naval History Podcast at gmail.com. Please rate, subscribe, etc. Until next time, go in and follow the season.